It's uh, Brian Ferry and Don't Think Twice. It's all right. On ABC Radio, you with Rod Quinn. It is time to cross to Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest there. And Celeste, a very good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning. Let's, before we talk about what's happening, um, is it St. Patrick's Day tomorrow or What's happening? In, it's a very strange situation in Boston, isn't it, when it comes to St. Patrick's Day, which you would think, you know, it's a big Irish city, there would be a big celebration of it. Yes. So uh, it is St. Patrick's Day on the 17th, uh, but in Boston, it is also what's called Evacuation Day, which is uh, a celebration of the day in 1776 when the British troops pulled out of Boston. And it is certainly it's a legitimate moment in American history, but it's also kind of a convenient way to make it an official holiday that just happens to fall on St. Patrick's Day. So you get the public holiday without giving a public holiday for a religious, well, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I suppose you get one for Christmas and Easter perhaps, but yeah, it's kind of a, it's a sneaky way. It's a, an end run round it, people might say. Yep. Uh, you can get the day off from school in some places. Now, this is very, very localized to Boston. It's not even the entire state or right. commonwealth of Massachusetts. But yeah, just pretty convenient. You're right. Let's jump to a couple of kind of local stories first, shall we, rather than the national stories. And this is a big one at Wellesley College. And this is one of the most prestigious women's, all women's university in the United States, if not the most prestigious. Hillary Clinton went there. Many, many other well-known names um, went to Wellesley. However, they've had a vote, an important vote this week. What were they voting on? So students at Wellesley College, and this has been called uh, the Harvard of women's colleges, things like that in the U.S., um, they had a, a non-binding referendum, but uh, still a referendum on whether to admit uh certain transgender students. Obviously, it's a women's college. Their current policy is to admit um, people who are assigned female at birth or live and identify all the time as women. And this might sort of open it up a little bit. Uh, for example, people who were born uh, assigned at birth, uh, the gender of female, but are transitioning to male. Um, or people who uh, identify as non-binary. Uh, neither officially or full-time male or female. I understand this is a very, very delicate issue. And what has also been said about this is that it was kind of just putting a name to something that was already happening at Wellesley, that this had been going on. Or, you know, there always had been perhaps non-binary, um, uh, you know, people who have gone to Wellesley, but they just, you know... There wasn't a big deal made out of it. I don't know how many, maybe not that many over the uh, couple of hundred years, I'm sure, that Wellesley's been around. But now they're saying, well, it is okay. Yeah, they're, you know, again, they're not officially changing the policy of the school just yet, but this is something that the student body has voted on. They also uh, voted, again, in a non-binding referendum to use gender neutral pronouns. So instead of saying women, you would say students, or instead of saying she or her, you would say they and them, sort of trying to take the gender out of it, which, you know, admittedly is kind of an interesting move for 
an extremely prominent women's yes. college. Yeah, so. and that's the whole thing about this is that this Wellesley has always made a very big deal about the fact that only women go there and that they are educating the women leaders of tomorrow. That that is the case. This is not like any other university. This is kind of a big deal. Yeah, and there are other there are certainly other schools uh, in the U.S. and and other places that admit only women. But I guess what this comes down to, and you're right, it is a very delicate subject and something we're you know, consistently learning more about and trying to figure out how to how to uh, talk about is what is a woman, what constitutes a woman specifically in this case for the purposes of admitting them to uh, a college that has traditionally served only females yes. or. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because female and woman are not exactly the same thing. That you may not be female, but you may identify as a woman. Now, I'm not in this situation. I don't have to, in a way, be concerned about it. In that regard, it's not up to me to say whether or not this should be the case. Firstly, I'm never going to go to Wellesley, and I'm also not in a situation that some of these people are in. I just find it interesting that, yes, if you are born a woman or born female and transition to male or to a man, then you are going to be allowed to go to Wellesley. Is that what we're looking at now? Yeah, I mean, that's what, the again, that's what the students are talking about. The college hasn't officially changed its policy, but it becomes uh, an interesting subject because it, you know, potentially opens up a lot of possibilities or a lot of issues for the college. Like if you do not identify as male or female, if you have X on your passport instead of M or F mm -hmm. and you are refused admission to the college, does that set up a discrimination issue? If uh, you are, if your college is receiving federal funding on the grounds that you don't discriminate on the basis of age, race, gender, uh, national origin, uh, ethnicity, whatever it is, like, does this set up a problem? Even if the college has historically um, exclusively served people who are female, identifying as female, or were assigned female at birth. So what's going to happen now, though, that and look, this is always when people take this to the nth degree, and I don't think this is going to happen. But if somebody, if a man wants to go to Wellesley and says, well, I identify as female, what happens then? I, I think that they're probably going to end up taking it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, if a person is applying to a college that you know, historically or exclusively serves one group, then yeah, I mean, it's sort of widely known that that's the policy. But uh, we have in the United States, for example, uh, historically black colleges and yes. universities. And some of those schools, you know, certainly are admitting uh, kids who are uh, of Asian descent or mm. of are white or are Latino or something like that. So I don't think it's a super rigid policy, but it sort of changes what does it mean to be yeah. Wellesley or what does it mean to be one of these other colleges that historically have been, uh, you know, to some extent, like um, preserved for people who yeah. are female? Or Howard University is, is all black. I think there's many. Well, there are a few that are known as the historically black colleges. Grambling, I think, is another one. Uh, so how do they get around the non-discrimination 
situation, that they discriminate against men by saying only women can get to this college, or the historically black colleges, which is what they're known as, uh, you know, discriminate against white people, for example. How how they manage to get around this because they're private universities. Yeah, I mean they are they are private. If they're not like um, you know a state university, they're not like the University of Massachusetts or something that is funded, you know, or almost fully funded by the public, by taxpayer dollars. That everybody has to have the same opportunity at least to get in. Um, but you know there are. Um, there are anti-discrimination laws that apply even, I think, to private institutions. I'm not an expert on this, but I mean, it definitely does raise the question, like, is somebody going to sue over this? And, um, you know, what is the reasonable expectation of what you should think your right, quote unquote, do you have a right to attend a private institution, quote unquote? I, you know, I don't know. Do you have the right to be a member of a private club or organization that has certain rules for membership? You know, these are questions that often get sorted out in court, but there is legal precedent. Um, I don't know what would happen in the case of Wellesley. Um, There there are always cases where somebody tries to test the system where it's like, I'm a man who wants to go to a women's college or I'm a, for for that matter, I'm a girl who wants to play on the boys football team. Yeah. It's a whole new world, isn't it, Celeste? I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah, that's what we're all going to be doing. Now, also... Massachusetts. It's a state always associated with the Kennedys or the Kennedys associated with Massachusetts. Is that still the case? Do you still are they still an important part of Boston or Massachusetts life? Yeah, I think that the Kennedy family will always uh, will always have a strong connection or people in Massachusetts will always have a strong connection. I mean, this is a state where people had a picture of uh, John F. Kennedy on the wall in, you know, with a picture of like grandma and a picture of like the Pope or something. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, they're, they're sort of our, our American equivalent of royalty, uh, if you were, and particularly the case in, in Massachusetts. Now, they're back in the news, or at least Jackie Kennedy is, even though she died in 1994. And, well, the Kennedys or her house, it's a very, very nice house in Georgetown in Washington, uh, has been, or it's up for sale. How much uh, will I need if I wanted to buy this house? Only $26.5 million. U.S.? Yes. It's probably about... Sixty million. Oh no, it's a bit about forty-five million Australian, something like that. Okay, I I might be able to find that down the lounge. Uh, tell me about this house, please. So it's a. It really is a beautiful house. Originally, I think she only bought one house, and then it expanded to include other properties to have garages. But it has uh, thirteen bedrooms and thirteen bathrooms. So uh, hopefully, that would be enough room for you and mm-hmm. and your friends and and family. Um, but yeah, twenty six point five million dollars just uh, a stone's throw away from the uh, Georgetown uh, shopping and restaurant district and. It's extraordinarily restored. It's historic, but it has sort of all the modern conveniences. And I mean, it's a it's a hell of a house. I mean, the bathroom looks like, uh, you know, you could have the Olympic swimming trials in there. And there's just all sorts of custom moldings and inlaid floors and, uh, you know, probably yeah. like the 12 burners on the stove in the kitchen it's it's remarkable but it is in a, a city environment right in uh, in washington dc in the georgetown district so there's a bit of a history there in georgetown she and jack kennedy lived in georgetown 
when he was a senator. Um, Caroline, who's currently the ambassador um, to Australia, I think she may have been, she was born there, but certainly uh, she lived uh, in that house in Georgetown, not in this one, but in a different one. And then after his tragic assassination, she bought this house, but she didn't live there very long, in fact, uh, because you know tour buses would come past the house. And so she moved to New York and lived on Fifth Avenue for pretty much the rest of her life, except for some various excursions to Greece, of course. Uh, she lived in Avril Harriman's house, I think, also in Georgetown. Georgetown is, as I'm sure you know, I mean, it's a, a, a magnificent part of Washington, the most beautiful part of Washington, and just walking around the streets with a guidebook tells you where everyone lives, you know, Bob Woodward and all those sorts of people and all the various Kennedys that live there as well. It's a really very beautiful part of probably the most beautiful part of Washington, D.C., wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, it really is a nice district, very historic and very well-kept, but convenient to actual stuff that you would want. It's not sort of isolated and remote. And, um, you know, she moved into this house. She um, started living there right after uh, her husband was assassinated. She bought this house, or at least the original part of the house, like a week after the assassination. And she paid less than $200,000 for it. So from $200,000 to $26.5 million is, is quite a jump. But given the nature of the house itself, even if it had not been the Kennedy home, I mean, it's still um, a very historic home, goes back to uh, the 1790s and... Um, again, has been expanded. So originally, apparently, one of the issues was it didn't have parking, but now it has uh, parking, it has garage space, which is a big deal. But uh, yeah, it's an extraordinary property and could make history as the most expensive private residence ever sold in, in the district. Okay. Now, here's an interesting thing. I've looked it up and there it is on Google Street View. It's blurred. You cannot see what this house looks like. I don't know who owns it now, but they've managed to get onto Google and blur this, or, you know, they've arranged for the house to be blurred. You cannot see the house. Right. I guess you would have to uh, come over and have a tour in person you know, <sighs> as an interested yeah. buyer, potentially. I mean, I mean, really, there's nothing. It's only two-hour parking, by the way, outside the house. Um, oh yes, I know. <laughs> it's a very nice neighbourhood, though. Very nice neighbourhood. End Street in Washington, D.C. Uh, Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest in um, in Boston. Okay, a couple of other things. The French Bulldog is the top U.S. dog breed. What, the most popular? I, I mean, I don't want to offend a lot of people, but I do it every day anyway. I cannot stand the French. I don't find them in any way a beautiful. <laughs> I mean, give me a Labrador or a Golden Retriever any day or a Dalmatian or a Weimaraner. Why are they so popular, Celeste? Well, first of all, they're kind of just goofy and cute and they have personality. They live well in cities. They're kind of small and compact. You can uh, put them in your, you know, take them on the bus or the train with you and carry them around in a bag. But they're, I mean, they're pretty substantial dogs. They're not like a, it's not like a chihuahua or like a miniature pinchers. I mean, there's some, there's some heft to a, a French bulldog, but, uh, I personally am and have been for a very long time a dachshund aficionado, so I'm voting dachshund personally. Mm, okay. But uh, the first time in three decades uh, that there's a new favourite dog. I find it I find it bizarre, but anyway. Uh, and they were the ones uh, that Lady Gaga owned, wasn't it? That uh, when her, she, they were dog-napped. 
Yes, they were. They were stolen when they were out with the dog walker. And it was uh, national news, if not international news, actually. Exactly but right. um, uh, yeah, they are they are top dogs. Sorry, had to say that. But Thank I'm you. still I'm still rooting for the dachshunds myself. Mm, all right. Fair enough. Now, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but remember uh, the COVID pandemic? I've heard of it. Yeah, I think. yeah, it was in the papers at the time. So a lot of people were trying various other drugs to try and cure it or make it end, uh, you know, sooner or or, or avoid it altogether. Uh, and you know, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, they've been kept very busy, really testing a lot of theories about drugs all these years, aren't they? Or haven't they? Right. So in this case, and, and yeah, there was a there were a lot of uh, supposed treatments, remedies, preventatives uh, for COVID during the pandemic, which is still going on. I'm sorry to say, and um, some of these were uh, trumped up on social media and so on as being the answer that were definitely not the answer, like ivermectin, which was, I believe, like an animal dewormer, yeah. um, things like that, people taking like fish tank cleaner medicines, oh. just nutty stuff, really like dangerous, don't do this um, stuff. But uh, in this case, the FDA is now looking at Paxlovid, which has been uh, a therapeutic. And there was this um, theory that um, it was connected to COVID rebound, that if you took it, you were more likely to get COVID again or to get sick again. And now they are finding that is not the case. And this matters because um, from the time it was introduced until now, it has been available as an emergency authorization. And now they want to make it sort of an official authorization. So they looked into, is it related to um rebound will you get sick again if you take it and some people did get sick again if they took it like i think joe biden the president um dr fauci um people who were treated with this thing but got sick again but it turns out that like yeah if you get treatment you might get sick again but no no more so than if you if you didn't it doesn't it doesn't increase your chances of getting covid sick again well that's something i suppose I think so. I mean, you want to, and it has to be administered, I think, within a short period of time, a few days after you start getting symptoms. But one of the big issues with it is that it might have a positive effect on stopping you getting long COVID, mm. which I've just been talking on my other radio program to somebody who has had long COVID. And it is a horrible, horrible affliction is the right word for it. Yeah. I mean, just awful, awful stuff. So anything that can prevent you uh either suffering while you have COVID or getting long COVID, I think is certainly worth taking a look at. How is how is it with COVID at the moment? There are more, I'm sure there have been more cases this year than at a comparable time at any time in the last, say, three years. And we're right here kind of at the, uh, the third anniversary of the pandemic. But do you hear of people getting it? Is it in the news in any way? Yeah, people are still getting it and people are still dying as a result of getting it. And again, now we are learning more and more now that we're a little bit out about long COVID and it's just debilitating. I mean, I was just speaking to somebody uh, again that I had interviewed right when the pandemic started and you couldn't even get a COVID test and three years out. Yeah. She's still getting knocked out by variants. She gets, you know, sick repeatedly, these uh, body aches, very difficult to work, brain fog, 
inability to concentrate uh, has been a real issue. And that's the kind of stuff that um, really gives pause because a lot of people at first were thinking, oh, well, you know, the variants have changed and if you get sick, you can get treated and you'll get better and it's just a cold or it's something we just have to live with like the flu. And people, you know, really need to get the message that this is still something to take seriously and that something that might not even, you might not have any symptoms, but then down the road, um, you might have terrible, terrible problems with long COVID, particularly if you're in certain high risk groups, like being overweight, having respiratory problems, being ov uh, older, having immune issues, uh, you know, lots and lots of things, uh, heart issues. Um, it, it's something to take seriously, even though a lot of us are, yeah, just over it, over the masking, over the isolation, over it. But, you know, mm. too bad. And we still have to think about it. Just for information, um, the 7th of March, I think, is the most recent figures I could find here for Australia. 19,000 cases were reported across Australia, an average of 2,700 per day. So in one week, there were about 20,000 cases. Um, that went up by 11%. In New South Wales, it went down by 7% in Queensland. There were um, five deaths in Australia on the uh, 7th of March. But, you know, that's down from 55 on New Year's Eve or 54 around about the first week of January. So that's, it has dipped a lot. But there are still thousands and thousands of people getting this every single day. And yet we don't hear a thing about it. It's amazing. Isn't I think it? we we hear we hear less about it for sure. And look, it's great, great news that fewer people are getting sick, that fewer people are being hospitalized, are going on ventilators, are dying. I mean, this is good, good news. And yeah, we can't remain in lockdown forever. The world has to function. People have to live. It's good for kids to be in school. Nobody doubts any of that. But the idea that we are through this, that it's not something that we have to worry about anymore, that we made it, you know, I'm not just, I don't know, maybe maybe yeah. I'm a worrier, but I'm not hanging up the, the mission accomplished banner just yet. Fair enough. Well, we know how that all came true, don't we? Celeste, thank you very, very much. I want you to uh, just keep an eye on who buys that house in uh, Georgetown <laughs> and whether they unblur the picture on Google Street View. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Celeste Katz-Marston in the United States.